Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest today is David Alsebrook, former president of the Alabama Historical Association from 2017 to 2018 and the author of Southside, Eufaula's Cotton Mill Village and its People, that you can hear about in episode 23 of the Alabama History Podcast. Today we're discussing his second book, Presidential Archivist, a memoir planned for publication on December 1st, 2020 by Mercer University Press. David, thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Marty, and it's always good to talk to you. David, yeah. tell us about your book. First of all, one of the things I learned in writing this book, this memoir, it's extremely different to write something in the first person. After all of us were trained as historians, we were supposed to be objective and always write in the third person. When you write in the first person, right off the bat, you get the impression that it sounds terribly pretentious to say, I did so-and-so. So at the very beginning of this experience, it was a little bit daunting to write in the first person, but after a while it became uh, second nature. This memoir really evolved from the recommendations 40 years ago that came to me from my Auburn professors, Leah Atkins and Alan Jones, and then later Wayne Flint when he became the chair of the history department at Auburn after I already graduated the thing that they reminded me of having an opportunity to work in the old executive office building next door to the White House where I would be what my friend Paul Pruitt at the University of Alabama calls an eyewitness to history. And so all of these people reminded me over the years I should keep copious notes, I should keep good records of everything that I had experienced during those years. About 1977, when I went to Washington from the Department of Archives and History in Alabama, I began to keep a journal and to keep detailed records of everything, both things that I thought were important and things that were rather routine, including what the weather was like and conversations with friends and what each day was like. So that was really the beginning of why I decided to write this story. From the very beginning, I was always driven by the fact that I wanted to convey what it was like to work as an archivist. Like so many of us, when I became an archivist, I really didn't know much about it. I was not even sure how to pronounce the word. Was it archivist? Was it archivist? I just didn't know. So one of the things I set out to do was to try to tell the story of what archivists do. So I devoted an entire early chapter to the types of jobs that we do. Preservation of documents, arrangement of documents, interpretation of documents. And I talked to a lot of my former colleagues did some research into what other archivists do, and that became the genesis for this early chapter on what I call the archivist life. I also wanted to include some semblance of a record about the Auburn University Archival Training Program, which is one of the first of its kind in the Deep South on the collegiate level that uh, Alan W. Jones had established back in the early 1970s. 
There were so many of us that came out of that program, and I felt like it was important to have some type of documentation for what that experience was like. Finally, I wanted to include my record of what I had observed working as an archivist in three presidential libraries and two tours of duty in the old executive office building. I felt like that had some importance. I didn't feel like I was a presidential historian. I felt like I was a record keeper. I was fortunate enough to get to know several different presidents and first ladies and their staffs and their families and so on. But I was never an intimate of any of these people. I essentially worked for them. So that was the genesis of the book, and hopefully it'll have an audience when it comes out on December 1st. What was your job like in D.C.? Then where did you go, and what were the positions that you held and the jobs that you performed in the presidential library system? As it turned out, I realized after I finished the book, I ended up writing probably more about the Carter Presidential Library in Atlanta and its evolution from a presidential materials project in 1981 until it was established a few years later. I didn't set out to do it that way. It's just once I began to write it, it just evolved that way. I went to three different libraries. I spent a few years off and on between 1977 and the early 90s in D.C. When I first went to Washington in January 1977, I already had a lot of archival training at Auburn and at the Department of Archives and History in Montgomery. They started all over in terms of training. There were a lot of people in our class who had come out of an academic background as historians. They came from all over the country. Most of them were from the Midwest and the East. I was the only one from the South. I think there were one or two from Texas. It was almost like an archival boot camp. They started off from the very beginning and taught us the way the National Archives worked. They taught us about the history of the National Archives. They gave us a lot of hands-on practical training in how to handle documents, how to do reference and research, how to do preservation. They rotated us through different units of the National Archives. We spent about two months at the Library of Congress learning their techniques. It was about a year of training. At the end of that year, I guess about 15 or 20 in our training class, we were given a choice of assignments. It looked like I was going to end up working on the Nixon audio tape preservation and materials end of things. And then one of my supervisors said, we may have an opening over at the old executive office building preparing for our future Jimmy Carter Presidential Library, if you'd be interested in that. And I said, well, that's really what I want to do. I went over as part of a small National Archives liaison office in the old executive office building in winter of 1977-78. And for the next three years or so until Jimmy Carter left office, our job was to prepare for the Carter Library, to do oral history interviews with the staff and the older family members of Mrs. Carter, keep records of the administration and record all of our observations and do everything we could to get ready for the Carter Library. At the end of the administration, prepare to move President Carter back home to Georgia. So that was the first real job I had with the National Archives. In 1981, I was the only one out of our office who transferred down to Atlanta. We were located in a renovated post office annex across from the Russell Federal Building. And for the next several years, we processed Jimmy Carter papers. We prepared for the museum exhibits. We helped him with his memoirs. 
and then, of course, other duties as assigned. So I ended up staying at the Jimmy Carter Library for 10 years. In 1991, I had a conversation with Don Wilson, who was in the Arctic United States, and I said, Don, I think I've done just about all of the work that I'm interested in doing here. I'm kind of tired of massaging these papers. If anything else comes up in D.C., I'd be interested in it. So about a week or so later, the Office of Presidential Libraries, the head of that office, called me and asked me if I'd be interested in coming back to D.C. to work on George H.W. Bush materials. And I said, absolutely. So at the end of the summer of 1991, they sent me back up to D.C. I thought at that point uh, President Bush would be reelected, so I expected to be there for another five years or so. But it turned out in another year and a half, I was on my way to Texas, where I was the director of the Bush Presidential Materials Project, preparing for George H.W. Bush Presidential Library. And I ended up staying there about another decade. Then in 2000, I transferred to the Clinton Presidential Materials Project, which was the genesis for the Clinton Presidential Library. And I stayed there until I retired in the spring of 2007. That's a total of 30 years. So I worked in three presidential materials projects, three presidential libraries. That was the thumbnail version of my National Archives career. And that's all captured in your book because you've kept detailed records, as you said, and you kept a journal of all of them. I did. And again, all along the way, Leah Atkins and Alan Jones periodically reminded me. They said, you have a responsibility to keep these records. And I said, I assure you I'm doing it. They wouldn't let me forget that I had a unique, archival experience and that I should share what happened with the rest of the wide archival world, such as it was. So I did. All of these will eventually be deposited at the Auburn University Archives and Special Collections for anybody who's interested in any particular topic. All of that will be there. All my papers will be there. I'm so glad that you addressed the idea of donating your papers. You know, Marty, it sort of brings me full circle back to Auburn because that was where I first learned how to be an archivist. So I think it's fitting that that's where those papers ended up because that was the place that had the greatest influence on me going back to when I was an undergraduate, but particularly when I was a graduate student working in the university archives and learning the basic tools of our trade. You know, most of us don't realize that what we're working on might be of a historical nature or might be of significance to somebody many generations from now. Although I realized when I worked at the EOB that I was in the midst of important historical events, but I was never overcome with that. I never thought, well, I'm important. I always felt like, no, I'm just one person who happens to be here working for the federal government, doing a job I was assigned. The important people are the presidents, the first ladies, and the people who work for them. I did try to record everything that I saw. And when I began to write this book, over the years, there have been so many tell-all memoirs and stories of people who worked in the White House, who worked for presidents. I never wanted to try to portray myself as somebody who was a presidential advisor or intimate or anything like that. I was one of thousands of ordinary civil servants who still toil every day for the federal government. When I was writing my opening comments to this book, we were just finishing up another furloughed situation in the federal government when there was a budget impasse. 
I wanted this book to be for all of those faceless, anonymous archivists and other career civil servants who toil on behalf of American citizens and don't ever get any credit for what they do. There are thousands of them. And they're still there. They're still working in the National Archives. They're still working in presidential libraries. Unfortunately, many of them are now at home, telecommuting, so to speak, working from home because of the pandemic. But that's how I felt about it. I felt like I was in a very unique position. I never took my job for granted. I felt like I was very fortunate. Some of my colleagues didn't want to volunteer to go to Georgia. They didn't want to go to Texas. They didn't want to go to Arkansas. I very enthusiastically took on all three of those assignments because I never regarded myself as a headquarters person. I always thought I was a field person. Let me ask you one more question about Auburn. Tell us about the so-called Auburn Mafia in the National Archives system. (laughs) Well, that was a term that several of us who had gone through the training program or gone through the history department program sort of jokingly began to refer to all of us who were alums as the Harvard Mafia. I was an equal opportunity employer, and I hired archivists from all over the country when I was involved in staffing decisions at these three projects. But as it turned out, Auburn was cranking out more well-trained archivists than anybody else at the time because of the program there. It was so easy to hire these people because they were all well-trained, They all had some type of historical or other social sciences background, so they didn't have to be trained from scratch when we brought them on. I hired several people from Auburn at the Carter Project. I once again hired several at the Bush Project. Several of them later transferred to the Clinton Library, and so the Auburn Mafia was quite widespread by the time I retired in 2007. There's still a few around. I know I'm getting older now because most of them have retired and gone on to other jobs and other lives. At one point, I think there were probably about 10 or 12 of us at the various libraries or in various units of the National Archives. As a matter of fact, two of them, John Laster, who's one of my staff members in College Station, he's now in a supervisory position in the Office of Presidential Libraries. He helped supervise the Obama move out of the White House. He was one of the primary supervisors there, and I think he's still there. Bill Harris is the assistant director at the Roosevelt Library in Hyde Park, New York. He was one of the archivists I recruited, came through the Auburn program. Barney Mary Finch, two of my employees at the Bush Project and Library in Texas, both came out of the Auburn program. So those are just a few of them. There were many more. Jimmy Purvis uh, was another one. He worked for me at all three places, at Carter, Bush, and Clinton. He recently retired and moved back to North Alabama. Most of the people I hired are retired, but probably about half of them are still working in the National Archives or Presidential Library System. I think it speaks well for the training that we had at Auburn, but it was called the Auburn Mafia. I'm extremely proud of them. I still hear from a lot of them from time to time. Occasionally, I would hear from people that say, gosh, I wish I'd been part of the Auburn Mafia. <laughs> but like I said, I was an equal opportunity employer, and I recruited people from UAB and from University of Georgia and University of Alabama and other places as well. Now, let me shift gears here and ask you about your publisher. You've said kind words about Mercer University mm-hmm. Press. I'd love for you to share some of those with our audience. I would love to. 
Dr. Mark Jolly is the director of the Mercer University Press in Macon. He has a very small staff. I think there are only about four or five people on the entire staff. Mary Beth Kozowski and Marshall Luttrell are two of his very able assistants. Miraculously speaking, during this awful pandemic, they stayed at work in Singapore course in their headquarters there on the Macon campus. All the students had already been sent home. And they've continued to publish books throughout the spring and the summer. They've just been terrific to work with, especially for somebody like me who came to the publishing game very late in my career. Three years ago, when they published my book on Ufala, Cotton Mill Village, I thought, you know, I've never dealt with any people who are more patient or more understanding. More or less, Mark Jolly told me, get to work. That was his preliminary guidance to me, and that was essentially the way he dealt with me throughout the production of the Ufala book. When I first undertook this book, I said, I'm not sure, Mark, you know, it's kind of a daunting task to think about writing this thing. And he said, just write one chapter at a time, and then lo and behold, you'll have a book. And that's exactly what happened. I didn't write the chapters in order, so I wrote the middle part of this book first, wrote the first couple of chapters at the end, and then wrote a conclusion. That's probably not the way you're supposed to do it, but that's the way I did it. It worked well when I wrote the Ufala book, and it worked well again this time. But I don't think I could have done it if I hadn't had the type of expert guidance that I had from Dr. Jolly and Mary Beth and Marcia. I can only imagine the challenges they have faced during the pandemic and not having any students on campus to help them, too. My hat's off to them. They're just terrific. Is there anything else that we need to cover? You know, this is going to be quite a challenge with this book coming out because the pandemic, we're not going to have any probably book signings or other public events or anything like that. So I just deeply appreciate your doing this. This is a valuable contribution to the literature, particularly of presidential libraries and of the history of the National Archives. Thank you. And I will say this. This is not the book some of my colleagues wanted me to write. I had several of them tell me, well, I don't think I would write that. And I explained to them, you can write your memoir. This is mine. I don't think some of them appreciate that. I've had several friends who said, you need to write more of a bureaucratic history of presidential libraries. I said, well, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in telling the story about how I became an archivist, what I did, and some of the interesting people who had an influence on my life. And that's what I tried to do. I think this book was a disappointment to some of my former colleagues, but a lot of them were extremely helpful. They gave me the benefit of their memories and their guidance and helped me in many, many ways. I don't expect it to be universally praised or a bestseller beyond the archival community or or beyond Pete Presidential Libraries, but we'll see. I've had a few people come up to me and say, well, I always wondered what kind of work you did, so now you find out. As you noted, books are hard to write. Why did you write this one? I've had this book in me for probably about 20 years. It was an itch I had to scratch. And I wanted my kids and grandkids to read it in the future and find out what was going on when they were growing up. So I felt like it was a contribution to them, too. But primarily, I wrote it for the people I worked with, all those so-called faceless bureaucrats, as we're sometimes called. There's a tremendous amount of political pressure in some of these jobs, and I wanted to try to capture the essence of that, too. 
So anyway, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. David, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at city stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.